there was no National Park Service right. at this point. And so they'd set aside the land and they're like, we want to protect it, but how? <laughs> right. There's no you know, hierarchy of people watching over this or like budgeting for it or anything like that. It was right. just kind of like, a, yeah, let's protect this. And now what? <laughs> <laughs> this is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like birds. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. So, John, I am a nerd, but I would say I'm not the same kind of nerd as you. But yeah. guess what I really like and what I've been working on? A whole list of every national park by date established. <laughs> I was so excited to work on this because I just love stuff like this. And so you can find a whole list now on Dirt in My Shoes. So I did parks in order by like from biggest to smallest. Nice. Date established, visitation, Ooh. busiest and least busiest. And then just like a grand list of all the national parks. That's cool. Yeah, by state. I love lists like that because I love comparing things. It like blew my mind. That's the thing. Like date established when I wrote that, I was like, nobody's going to care about that except me. <laughs> but that's the one that actually people are like the most excited about reading. Nice. Out of all my new lists. That's date pretty cool. established. Yeah. People, I think that's kind of neat because I think people, it's hard to... I don't know. All of these parks are ancient. They exist. They're all ancient. Old. Oh, like the land, the itself. landscape, well, yeah. <laughs> the mountains, the trees, the rivers. They're all ancient and stuff like that. But actually, the age of each of these parks, it's really interesting to know when each of these parks were set up and and trying to put them back into their historical context. It's really interesting. Yeah, I just I guess I didn't realize that there were so many people that were as nerdy about that as me because <laughs> I've just been so excited <laughs> to be like, oh, my gosh, people are reading my date established post. <laughs> and... Well, that just that just goes to show there's different kinds of nerds. <laughs> you can be nerdy about anything. I just happen to be nerdy about traditional things. Yeah. You are nerdy about National Park dates. That <laughs> <laughs> makes me sound so dumb. But yes. So anyway, this episode today was inspired by that list and how nerdy I got while I was looking at it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I don't think for as much as I love the national parks, mm -hmm. like I didn't even know what the first five parks were. Right. I knew Yellowstone. <laughs> yep. We, every, everything, everybody knows Yellowstone, yeah, oldest but, and best. Yeah. But then you look through the list, like I was looking through the list and I was like, no way. That one was that <laughs> early. Like it was crazy. There were some in there that I was like, wow, that one got established so early on. Or some of them you're thinking, this one is that new? Yeah. Like this one wasn't established that long ago? Or how did this one beat that one? Ash yeah. is like, According to my calculations, 
this one was 17 years older than this national park. Uh, you know what I did learn? <laughs> Giant punk. What I thought was really cool. And if you're nerdy about stuff like this with me, like we'll link this post in the show notes right. so that you can go look at it. But like what I was really surprised about actually, and this wasn't the most surprising thing, but just something I thought was really cool. So Denali National Park was pretty early. Mm-hmm. And then there was one more, I think it was Glacier Bay that was before. But then there were a whole bunch, like all the rest of the Alaska parks were all at the same time, like 1980. They just added, like they literally like, I don't know, quadrupled the amount of space. Oh my gosh. Like the amount of land protected by the park service with just like adding like these whatever five national parks in Alaska. (laughs) That's crazy. But it wasn't that long ago. Like you said, like, it. I mean, 1980 was kind of a long time Just ago. Just because we were alive doesn't mean it wasn't a long time ago. <laughs> I wasn't alive in 1980. The president of the United States, like, MC Hammer, it's Hammer time. <laughs> park, 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 park. Do, 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 do. <laughs> it Can't was, touch this. It was Jimmy Carter. But anyway, so I just, like, I was just looking at it going, no way. Whatever. <laughs> like, I can't believe that, that was when. So. Today, though, we're going to talk about the first five, because I feel like as a national park enthusiast, Mm -hmm. you should know what the first five national parks were. Right. And it's so interesting. And their stories are cool. So we're going to jump in to talk about the first five national parks established. And I will put an asterisk on this. It's the first five that were established that are still national parks now. Right. And we will talk about that. But... The numbers of like what actually are the first five, like there's some people are fighting about that. Other right. nerds like me. It's so funny. So, anyway. On the National Park website for like Yellowstone or some of these, some of the first national parks, there's always like a little section, like a content advisory. Just so you know, people are saying this is the first national what? park. You or found this some? Uh-huh. I never found stuff like that on the website. I just saw like some of them. I was like, that's not the number of this national park (laughs) like what are they talking about and the national park website actually says yes and anyway we'll get into that but yes i didn't find anywhere where they were like this is why Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i had to dig i found it oh did you i always find the disclaimers Uh, no you don't (laughs) that's my job and i did find them i did dig but the actual national parks that i was looking at didn't have anything on there Right. site that said oh by the way <laughs> that might have been why maybe yeah, my national parks did yours must be better okay yes let's jump in john oh okay well, before we really dive into the first national park i feel like the historical context is so interesting and so i want to kind of set the stage a little bit because before we get to each individual park there's some cool things that happen united states history starts 1776 A ragtag group of disorganized colonies take on the greatest superpower in the world, right? And you have to realize that at this point, just about every inch of the planet at this point is controlled by some kind of a monarchy that has hundreds or even thousands of years of history. And so the whole world is like looking at America, at this baby of a country, just expecting it to fail. And it makes me think of that song from Hamilton where the Americans just won and then King George in disbelief is just like, what comes next? So you're freed. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to lead? You know? <laughs> Jonathan Groff is my favorite. <laughs> I, I love him so much. I feel like we've done a few Hamilton lines the last few episodes. 
He's the best King George. You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's so funny. But it's just like, do you know what happens now? And I'm not sure anybody at this point really knew how it was going to work out. And at the end of the Revolutionary War, most people still identified with their state more than they did with their country. I'm a Virginian or I'm a New Yorker. It wasn't really like that American identity yet. I just say it now, but back then it's like, what is an American? It's not a race. We're a country of immigrants. It's not a religion. It says so in the Constitution. And there's this great Clint Eastwood Western from the early 90s called Unforgiven. There's this character in it played by Richard Harris. So the first Dumbledore, if you watch the first couple of movies. But he plays this character called English Bob. And all English Bob does throughout his lines is he's just like deriding Americans and just <laughs> like say, all he says is like, this is so dumb. You're reelecting your presidents over and over again. The monarchy is so much better. It all works out in the end because Gene Hackman beats the crap out of him. But that was a pretty normal idea throughout the world. Like this ragtag group of merchants and settlers with no history, no culture, it only worked because they were reunited against their enemy, but they're totally destined to fail. But we didn't, okay? So we didn't fail. We fought a civil war, yes, but we fought and won the civil war to stay together as a free people, not to fall apart and not to separate. And so the idea of America was really allowed to live on and that cultural identity of America allowed to grow. By the end of the civil war, the country is still not even 100. It's not even 90 yet. So young. America's a player on the world stage, but it's kind of insecure. And we're a country with great ideals, but you can't take out your ideals like pictures in your wallet and be like, this is life and this is liberty and the pursuit of happy. Oh, and look, it's equality under the law. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> we have all these great ideals, but Americans really wanted something they could point to that they could latch their identity onto in a lot of ways, kind of like a lot of these people from Europe and these other continents could. They could point to things like the Great Cathedral of Notre Dame or St. Peter's Square, Shakespeare, London, these great cities with amazingly long history and a strong culture. Americans really wanted that. And so Americans at this time were really searching for something that they could latch their cultural identity onto. Enter the national parks. They found Yellowstone. They, <laughs> it's so cool. Yellowstone. Can you imagine anything better to latch your identity onto? It's such a cool place. It really is. <laughs> and I think that it is worthy of its number one national park oh uh, my gosh. title. It's so great. I have a t-shirt that says oldest and best Yellowstone. And it really is awesome. When we think of Yellowstone, we think of natural forces. We kind of understand what's causing a lot of the things that we're seeing. But back then, to hear a lot of the stories of Yellowstone would have been so foreign. Mm -hmm. And it would have taken people back to, in a lot of ways, like what they would have heard in Sunday school, devils and things like that, which is why a lot of national parks have things named after angels and devils. Right. And so with Yellowstone, all the smell of sulfur and everything like that in the air and boiling water. It sounds... Everything's bubbling and spewing and making noise and yeah. steaming. And it's just like, <laughs> place, what kind of place is this? I know. But it also caused people to not believe what they were hearing. 
Right. And so it's so interesting. I mean, we've had trappers. Trappers had entered the area of Yellowstone. They'd been in there since the 1700s. The fur trade, beavers and everything like that was so strong that trappers were being sent out west all the time. They're bringing back loads and loads of furs to send back east and to Europe and things like that. But we had fur traders, the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804 to 1806, just barely bypassed Yellowstone. But during the third 1830s and the 1840s, that's when you get the first real reports, the real first stories from mountain men like Daniel Potts and Osborne Russell, the more well-known like Jim Bridger. I've literally never heard of those other ones, (laughs) not even once. (laughs) Yes, they did write down some of their reports. I think they got a few of them published in some periodicals or something like that. They're no Jim Bridger. Right, but Jim (laughs) Bridger, he's the one that people recognize. He explored a lot of these places. But there's a problem is that while I'd never dreamed to compare myself to these incredible mountain men, did some amazing things. I will say that we are alike in one simple way, that we have a kindred spirit with Gandalf, who speaking to Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit says that all good stories deserve embellishment. Yeah, those mountain men were not known for <laughs> Oh my gosh. not embellishing their stories. There's definitely oh, a lot of stuff coming out of the West that people in the East were just like, huh? <laughs> yeah, they could stretch a story so far. I, I can imagine some of their fishermen's tales yeah. were pretty exciting. But these men had been there and they had been to Yellowstone, but their stories were so embellished that nobody would believe anything that they said. And so their descriptions of a land of fire and brimstone that smelled of sulfur where wandering spirits and demons caused the earth to spew boiling water out. It was just too fantastical. Yeah. And Mormon pioneers entered the area in 1847, but they were still too far south. No credible reports about the truth of any of these tales actually came about until after the Civil War, the year the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, 1869. And so starting in 1869, three consecutive expeditions, one year apart. This is a quote from the first one in 1869. They brought credible reports of this masterpiece of nature's handiwork. And that's a quote from the Folsom Cook Peterson expedition. That was followed by the Washburn Langford Doan expedition in 1870. But the culmination of all of these expeditions was in 1871. It's the Hayden expedition. Ferdinand Hayden, he was head of the U.S. Geological and Geographical Survey. And he was joined by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Basically, they were tasked with going to Yellowstone and coming back with the truth mm-hmm. and nothing but the truth. <laughs> Decades. Like, All right, we'll send one from USGS. <laughs> the generations <Whatever. laughs> of these crazy stories and people finally wanted to know what the truth was. And so the team included experts in botany, in meteorology, geology, ornithology, mineralogy, map making. But probably most of the success of the expedition needs to be given to the last few members of the fellowship, basically. A the couple fellowship? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the last couple members of the expedition were artists and a photographer, Thomas yeah. Moran. Th- so that we sent everybody out and they come back 
and yes, we have all this scientific proof of all these different things and, and the, the scientists are all in agreement. This place is real. But it wasn't until finally, for the first time ever, people had visual proof of the mysteries of Yellowstone. Thanks to the photographs of William Henry Jackson and the paintings and sketches of Henry W. Elliott. And yes, of course, our favorite, Thomas Moran. You're a young American growing up in the cities of the East. The country has just torn itself apart to stay together with the Civil War. You've heard tales from the trappers about the wonders of the country out West. But you and the country are both looking for a fresh start. And you see in the paper a picture of Old Faithful and the wonders of the frontier. And the Wyoming Territory is waiting for you. And you listen to this note. This is a note from the 1871 expedition where Hayden says, he noted that in terms of scientific value, the geysers of Iceland sink into insignificance in comparison to the hot springs of the Yellowstone and the firehole basins. <laughs> of course. Ours is the best. Right? Well, it's like we're looking back to Europe. We're right. looking at these ancient cultures, right? And we're like, no, look at this. Yeah. Check this. Hold my beer. Okay? We got this. And so... We're looking at this awesome land out west, and it's a land of adventure. This is what is insane to me. Within six months of the return of the Hayden expedition back to Washington, within six months on March 1st, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act. Woohoo! Yeah! <laughs> Go America! The, the first ever. Suck on that, Europe. The first ever national park with land specifically set aside for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. So cool. Oh, my God. It really is. I mean, you have to think. And I guess I didn't think about how soon after the Civil War that actually was. Right. Just a few years. I've seen the date before, but it's just like I didn't think about what was actually happening and how you would think that would be kind of a bottom of everyone's mind but it makes sense how it would be the top like you said something to latch on that is very american mm -hmm. and i would say we've done it really well yeah i think so it's, it's just so neat especially after the civil war after such a huge number of people had just been killed there were signs all throughout europe of people like come to america free land out west we needed to replenish the population a little bit but also, we're telling a lot of our own people, go out west and settle the frontier. This is a land of adventure. That's what yeah. America is. That's what like our identity is tied to, is these amazing natural features. Well, and then you have to think, and we'll get into this with the next park we're going to talk about, but uh, a lot of these early parks, there was no National Park Service right. at this point. And so they'd set aside the land and they're like, we want to protect it, but how? <laughs> Right. There's no, you know, hierarchy of people watching over this or like budgeting for it or anything like that. It was right. just kind of like a yeah, let's protect this. And now what? <laughs> <laughs> let's draw some arbitrary lines on a map. Yeah. And just kind of a, that's the park. And there's native peoples who have been using these areas for thousands of years and there's People that have settled nearby, people who are trying to, like in Yellowstone's case, there's a lot of poaching and hunting, mm -hmm. stuff like that, just from people who had already been there. And so for the National Park to be created didn't really 
mean anything to all these people who are still using it. And then there's no structure around keeping it there. So Yellowstone had like it was protected by the army for a long time. So you get into if you go up into Mammoth, you'll see all the old buildings from Mm -hmm. when the army was there actually trying to keep people from doing illegal things in Yellowstone now that it's a national park and stuff like that. Right. But that didn't even happen until 1886. Right. So we had like 14 years of just like whatever kind of governing going on in Yellowstone. (laughs) What do we do with this national park for more than a decade? People are just like, we have no idea what to do. (laughs) What? I don't know. Put the army in charge of it. You being a park ranger. And I think the funny hats and the cool, I don't know, the way that the National Park Service is set up, I think owes a lot of that to the army roots that it has in Mm -hmm. Yellowstone, where it's almost military in style. And so we'll talk about this in some other parks too, but people like, I think in a lot of ways as a society, we happen upon things accidentally. And this time it actually worked. Yeah. Pretty good. Let's jump to the second park then, because the story of this park really leans heavily on the army. Right. It's really interesting. And so park number two. So Yellowstone was established in 1872. What is national park number two? I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. What is (laughs) national park number two? I wouldn't say that I would have known this off the top of my head until I got really nerdy and started looking at it. National Park number two, Sequoia. Yeah. Sequoia National Park in California, established September 25th, 1890. So 18 years after Yellowstone. Now, here's the thing. Was it number two? No, it was not. (laughs) We did not go 18 years without establishing a national park. And I had no idea about this. But Mackinac Island in Michigan, Mackinac Island National Park. Interesting. Was created in 1875. Oh, weird. So just a few years years after Yellowstone. However, it was decommissioned in 1895. They changed their mind. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I actually don't know what happened. I didn't look into it very much, but it was only a national park for 20 years. So technically, technically it was the second national park, but it's not a national park anymore. It was a probationary period. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't pass. (laughs) Um, No, I've heard Mackinac Island is supposed to be super cool. I've never been there, but it's supposed to be amazing. But anyway, so national park number two is actually Sequoia National Park. And Sequoia, its establishment story isn't really groundbreaking, except Mm -hmm. (laughs) that people in this area of California were noticing that a lot of these big giant Sequoia trees were being logged Mm -hmm. and they didn't like it. Right. And so in an effort to stop logging in this area, they all came together (laughs) and said, we want a national park here. We had two national parks at this point. But that's groundbreaking. Right. That really is. I mean, to us, it's not. But to them, like, this is a totally new idea. Nobody knows what to do with Yellowstone. We think it's a good idea. Let's do it to protect these trees. Yeah. And so Sequoia National Park is the first national park ever created to protect a living organism. It was groundbreaking because we said, hey, 
Here's the thing about Sequoia National Park, okay? (laughs) It has some of the highest mountains, deepest canyons, tallest waterfalls, biggest trees. It is immense. Yeah. It's insane, this (laughs) park, okay? Everything is large and just giant and crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's not that it didn't even have the landscape worth protecting. It had a landscape worth protecting too, but the reason people wanted a national park here was because they didn't want to see these giant trees locked. Right. It's really cool. What happened basically, so in September of 1890, President Benjamin Harrison signed the legislation establishing America's second national park. Second. (laughs) In quotes. It was created to protect the giant sequoia trees from logging. That's pretty much the story. I mean, that's pretty much what they wanted. Now, what I thought was really cool was that a week later, after they established Sequoia National Park, they actually also established General Grant National Park. Right. Which protected General Grant, uh, another giant tree. So you've got General Sherman and mm-hmm. General Grant. Right. And those are like the two big, huge, massive Sequoia trees. They're huge. So they did create another national park, actually, to protect General Grant one week later which I thought was really cool. That national park got eaten up (laughs) by Kings Canyon National Park. When they established Kings Canyon, it also took in General Grant. So once again, the timeline gets a little bit funky. Right, because General Grant is no longer a national park. Right. Kings Canyon wasn't established till like 1940. Don't give people any clues. That's not a national park I'm just in kidding. our list. So I was, I was like, just saying, what are you don't about? spoiler alerts. No, Thanks. so so General Grant <laughs> turned into Kings Canyon. So now you can see both right. parks. But yeah, so technically General Grant, I guess, would have been thrown in there too as another national park. Right. I just think it's cool that they got two national parks in this area because they wanted to save these trees. I know, it's so neat. Here's the cool thing about it though. I really love this part of the history. In 1903, so they had had a superintendent in Sequoia National Park, actually. They did have something kind of in place of people kind of watching over this park. Mm -hmm. But in 1903, Charles Young, he was sent in as a military superintendent to Sequoia. And he was the commander, basically, of what we know as Buffalo Soldiers. Right, right. So he was a military superintendent that came to Sequoia and General Grant National Parks. What's crazy, so he was a black man born into slavery in Kentucky during the Civil War. He just like, his career and his life did not follow what was normal for a black man in that time because he was the first African-American to graduate from a white high school in Ohio He won an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Wow. Yeah. And then he graduated with his commission, only the third black man to ever do so at that point. What a cool guy. Yeah. So he graduated from West Point in 1884. He's in the cavalry. And while he was serving as a captain of an all-black regiment in San Francisco, he was asked to take his troops to Sequoia. Wow. Yeah. So... He was the acting superintendent in Sequoia with these Buffalo soldiers that he was the captain over, and they were the ones who really protected the park and took care of it. Just what I think is cool. So he got there, and 
even though it had been a national park for 13 years already by that time, there was really like no way that it was so underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. And so he really put a lot of his effort into building roads into this park and through this park so that people could come in and see the trees. That's so cool. Yeah. So I think it's really cool. They really tried to stop poaching of wildlife and illegal logging. Um, Sheep grazing, I guess, was a problem in the area. But Congress in 1900, they actually gave this park a budget. Nice. Yeah, of (laughs) $10,000. What a novel idea. (laughs) And that's when the army came in and started building these roads and trying to get more. But most of the roads and most of the infrastructure that went in during those early years were under Charles Young. He was the one who was just like, we got to get this in here. We got to do this faster. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so he really dug in, which I just thought was so cool. Like He's an amazing, amazing man. He actually does have a sequoia tree named after him. He didn't want one. (laughs) He was like, no, thanks. I don't. I think he sounds really cool. He's probably so, being a little bit modest. I think so. A little humble yeah. about it. But oh, they, don't give me a tree. Don't give me a tree. But, but they then like did. he fist pumps as he walks away. <laughs> I would. I got a tree. That's yeah. so cool. But once again, it just shows like the early history of the National Park Service. It draws a lot on its military roots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is so cool. It was a huge part of these early parks. Now, I do want to take a minute just to talk about the trees themselves, because this is what I think it's just so cool that they got Sequoia National Park established because now at this time, most important sequoia groves are safeguarded in national parks, state parks, and national forests. There are only 8% of all giant sequoias that are in private ownership. So 92% of these trees are being protected federally. Yes. Or in a state park. Some type of protection though. Only 8% of the giant sequoias left are private. So they really set a precedent Mm -hmm. to getting this protected because now we've started protecting just sequoias everywhere. That's so cool. But they should be protected. So General Sherman, which is the largest tree in the world Mm -hmm. by volume, which they say a lot on the website, like it's about the amount of wood that the tree has. (laughs) It's how much girth units it has. (laughs) Yeah, so it's not the tallest tree and it's not the widest tree. In a lot of cases, they are the widest trees and stuff like that. But it really has to do more with like the volume of the just the amount of wood that are on these trees. So General Sherman is the big one in Sequoia National Park. It's 275 feet tall, which is huge. It's a huge tree. But considering redwood trees can get into the 300s. 350 pretty easily. He's not the tallest, but his trunk weighs an estimated 1,385 tons. Wow. Its circumference at the ground is 103 feet. And that's all the way around if you put a rope all the way around it. And he is estimated to be 2,200 years old. Oh my gosh. So I also read that General Sherman, every year he grows enough wood to be equivalent to a 60-foot normal tree. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Whoa. So every year, it's like adding another 60-foot tree to this tree, to this that's, giant sequoia. That's insane. Crazy, right? That's huge. So you can see why they wanted to log them as far as how much wood you actually get. Oh, my get. gosh. You know how much board feet you would get out <laughs> of one of those trees? 
Yeah, but I'm so glad like people were just like, we got to save these trees. It's the quintessential save the trees story. Yeah, exactly. So that's Sequoia National Park. So cool. Okay, so what date was that? Remind me of the date. 1890. What specific day? September 25th. Okay. Sequoia was made September 25th, 1890. The third national park was October 1st, 1890. A week later. (laughs) Booyah! Number three, Yosemite National Park was one week after Sequoia National Park in 1890. And honestly, it's just so cool that those two parks are so close together. And for a lot of the same reasons that Yosemite was made a national park, Sequoia was made a national park. Mm -hmm. And actually, I should say it the other way around. around. (laughs) Because Sequoia Sequoia was first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There's a song from the Muppets. I'm number one. You're number two. Yeah, that's the only Muppet movie I like, actually. (laughs) Oh, I love the (laughs) The Muppets. The one where Kermit sings that song. Yes, Kermit's imposter. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Kermit. Okay. (laughs) That's right. That was pretty good. So Yosemite has a similar timeline in terms of like when it was made a national park. But Yosemite has a crazy backstory even before that. Because Yosemite is the original battleground for conservation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because we talked about that in the Yosemite episode, the Yosemite fun facts. Yes, exactly. If you're interested, like to really know what we think about this, (laughs) um, we do talk about it in that episode. (laughs) Yes. But it's so interesting. And a lot of people are like, when I say Yellowstone, it's those people with disclaimers and air quotes and like that want context advisories. It's like, Yes, Yellowstone was the first national park, but Yosemite was made a state park in 1864. And so... Doesn't count. I know, it just doesn't count. doesn't count. count. (laughs) The state park is not a national park. That's going with the state identity that you talked about at the beginning, right? right? Exactly. It's fine it was a state park, but it wasn't going towards the ideal of a national identity. Exactly. It's so different because, yeah, exactly. It was a federal government land grant basically but there the federal government was like yeah let's make this a park but we'll just put california in charge of it we'll deed it all to california Mm -hmm. and so it was really interesting 1849 gold rush brought tons of people to california and once the gold rush the fever kind of died down a little bit then you had all these other industries come in timber ranching all these other different kinds of industries that came into the area And people discovered some amazing things in the Sierras. They found a lot of the sequoia trees in Sequoia. They found those in Yosemite as well. They found Yosemite Valley, which, oh my gosh, is just a picture of all things good and wonderful. It's absolutely gorgeous. Galen Clark, who is one of my favorite people in all of National Park history, he found his way into the area in the late 1850s and he just stayed. And Mm -hmm. it became his life. Everybody knows John Muir when it comes to Yosemite. But before John Muir was John Muir, James and his wife, Elvira Hutchings, they moved into the area in the mid-1850s. They lived in Yosemite Valley and they ran a hotel and things like that. And it was actually him in a lot of ways that caused the stir to get everything going for Yosemite because 
He visited the place. He thought it was awesome. He saw the waterfalls. He heard the reports of the big, amazing waterfalls and, and granite cliffs in the area. And then he published his own magazine to basically tell people it was California Magazine. And he published it. There was over 60 issues, but he made Yosemite an overnight sensation. And mm. that is kind of the catalyst that made it a state park first. And then after it was a state park, you have this long period of time where it's kind of just like Yellowstone. It's like Sequoia. What the heck do we do with these places? How do we manage them? What are the rules? We want people to come and see it, obviously, but how do we manage these awesome resources? From like 1864 all the way through 1890, you have a debate about conservation that is Yellowstone was isolated enough that in some ways it wasn't the main point of the conservation conversation. Well, Yellowstone doesn't really have a lot of resources like Yosemite and Sequoia do. Right. In some ways, Yellowstone kind was of a like, dead land. <laughs> yeah, we'll make it a national park. We can't even use it yeah, for anything. Yeah, we can't farm here. We can't do anything. <laughs> right. There's nothing to do here except watch the water explode. Sure. Exactly. But when it comes to Yosemite, it was resource rich. And that's why when Galen Clark, he found his way into the Sequoia Groves, he's like, oh my gosh, we have to protect these. And then John Muir, he shows up in like 1868, I think was his first, that was the first time he even visited Yosemite. He gets there and he's so impressed by it, he becomes a sheep herder for a couple of years up in Tuolumne Meadows. Mm -hmm. And so then he lives in Yosemite for a while and he's like, oh my gosh, we have to protect this. Galen Clark, we have to protect the trees from the timber industry. John Muir, we have to protect all of these meadows from the ranching industry. It's not that these industries are bad. It's just that there are some places that we have to keep pristine. We have to preserve them. And so in 1890, finally, after years and years of James Hutchings and John Muir being the voice for Yosemite, it finally became a national park. Mm -hmm. But even after that, the question of how we manage this, we have all these resources. I wonder if the conversation about preserving or conserving Mackinac Island was the same conversation they were having about Yosemite. Yes, it's a national park, but we can still use the resources, right? Well, and that's more east too, which is Mackinac Island itself isn't like super heavily populated, but a lot of areas around it are, which I think makes it harder to, yeah. <laughs> especially if there's no structure and no National Park Service saying, hey, keep your grubby hands off this land, <laughs> you know? Exactly. So uh, I think that's a big part of it, too, is it's just like, what's realistic for, sure, we can set aside the land, but mm -hmm. then what? And that conversation continued to the point where in 1906, when San Francisco had that giant earthquake, people realized we have a water shortage in San Francisco. Let's dam one of the valleys in Yosemite. And we can use that water. And John Muir fought it tooth and nail for years and years, fighting the conservation fight, but eventually lost. And yeah. now that's why we have Hetch Hetchy, the O'Shaughnessy Dam, right there in the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which is was gorgeous, still is gorgeous. But then it kind of forced the issue to the kitchen table for a lot of people, where it's like, what is the purpose of conservation versus preservation? the purpose of national parks. Can we actually still harvest and use all these resources? 
it was a really interesting conversation and it was being lived out in Yosemite. Yeah, Yosemite was a huge deal for those early national parks and really, like you said, bringing the issues to the table and making people talk about it and figure it out and stuff. Because after Hetch Hetchy, it was like, oh, no, 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 we are not doing this in the (laughs) national parks. And they had to really figure that out. And those Buffalo soldiers that you talked about in Sequoia were also that same group was managing Yosemite Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so this Hetch Hetchy stuff in the dam happened after those Buffalo soldiers until nowadays, we have this managerial and resource ethic that the National Park Service is. But we didn't have that back then. As the third national park, Yosemite has such a crucial part to play in the history of these first five. And the history going forward. Right. <laughs> All of them, because that's the discussions that we needed to have to figure out what the National Park Service actually needed to be. Right. So, exactly. Very cool. Let's jump to number four, which again, all over the website for this national park, it says it's the fifth national park. (laughs) I'm like, I couldn't find the fourth one. I don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) So this is number four. I am declaring it. Yes. Even though the National Park Service site says it's five. We don't care about all these asterisks (laughs) and content advisories. So this was in March 2nd, 1899. So nine years after Sequoia and Yosemite. We have, this was a huge surprise to me. Mm -hmm. Huge. I remember learning this when we were at the park last summer and I was like, mind blown. No way. National Park number four is Mount Rainier in Washington. Oh my gosh. Not only huge surprise, huge mountain. It's an amazing national park. It is incredible. Like it definitely should be a national park. I just had no idea it was 1899? So early on. So early. Like Yellowstone, Sequoia, Yosemite, Mount Rainier. It's just crazy. Here's the thing. Okay, so Mount Rainier was during the time of John Muir as well. Mm -hmm. He played a big part in getting Mount Rainier designated as a national park. Right. Which I think is cool. So he was down in Yosemite being like, we got to make this a national park. Boom, we did it. Now he moves to Mount Rainier and says, we got to make this a national park. (laughs) Boom, he did it. Yeah. So I just think it's funny. And it wasn't just John Muir. He went during the summer and he saw all the wildflowers Mm -hmm. that are up by the mountain, which are just enough to blow your mind. They really are incredible. And that's what kind of tipped it for him was we got to save this beautiful place full of wildflowers, which I think is amazing. Yeah. John Muir is such an interesting character because he spent so much of his time just championing that New Testament call, come and see. Just over and over talking to politicians, journalists, businessmen, anybody with any type of influence, he was always just like, come and see. And he would always bring people to the parks and tour it with them. And it was his influence that echoes to us now. But it wasn't just him. He did play a part of it and and people know his name. And so I think it's worth mentioning he was there. Right. And he did love Mount Rainier and he tried to make it a national park, but it wasn't just him. They weren't going into Mount Rainier saying, we got to make this a national park. It says on the website, it was not predetermined that Mount Rainier would be a national park. That was not the plan, really. But what happened basically is we had like 
scientists, mountaineers, conservation groups, local businesses, large railroad companies, all of these people saw benefits to Mount Rainier becoming a national park in various ways for them. And so they basically all worked together to say, hey, let's do this. And the state of Washington, the congressman who is supposed to put this forward as a national park, he received assurances that the park would not come as an added expense to the government. (laughs) And then it passed to make it a national park. He was like, I guess, as long as it doesn't cost us more money. So they did that. Yeah. So it's really cool. It wasn't really on somebody's radar. People were starting to be interested in the timber surrounding Mount Rainier. They formed the Pacific Forest Reserve in 1893, which was on the western side of Mount Rainier. And then they changed the name in 1897 to the Mount Rainier Forest Reserve, and then they made it bigger at that time. And that's the area that they then, we should make this a national park. Hmm. So during the first 15 years of the park's existence, which leads us into the time when the National Park Service was established in 1916. So we're getting closer to having some type of structure here. Yeah. So remember, people, the Park Service didn't even exist. Yeah. This is all pre-Park Service. And so the 15 years between 1899 and the early 1900s, it said that they were trying still to establish mining and water and timber schemes, but they did manage to hold a lot of those off. Congress passed legislation in 1908 that kept them from being able to claim any more mines (laughs) in the area. But I did see that there was one that actually was still running and like privately held that had predated all of this Uh until the 1980s. (laughs) Whoa. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was still like a work in progress trying to get people out. (laughs) Hey, we're not doing this anymore. So I just thought that was really cool. The fact of the matter is that this area had been so important to so many people for so many years. They can trace humans in this area back 9,000 years. Nice. There's a lot of native tribes that consider Mount Rainier to be very sacred, and it's an area where they would go to get their sustenance. And one lady, she talks about, oh, we always went and got huckleberries in this area and stuff like that. So it's very special to a lot of people. What I hate... So it's already a national park. We talked about this, but I do think it's interesting, like just the human use for so long. The mountain itself was called Tahoma or Tacoma by Uh the native people. And so that's what they wanted to keep it as, especially as they're like naming it a national park and stuff. It should be called Tahoma. But the reason it's called Rainier is because Captain George Vancouver saw the mountain in 1792. He saw it from the Puget Sound, which was not even, he didn't even go to Mount Rainier. He just saw it, which you can see really cool from from the water by Seattle. And he decided to name the mountain after his friend. Nice. Rear Admiral Peter Rainier. And this man had never saw Mount Rainier in person. (laughs) So. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm glad it's a national park. It's an amazing mountain. I wish it was called Tahoma or Tacoma uh-huh. as a nod to the native peoples who have lived in this area forever and called it that forever. But that's the story 
of the name. Your kid's kind of like Mount Rushmore, how you're a little let yeah. down by the naming story oh, of you it. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but Mount Rainier as a national park, my gosh, it's a 14,410-foot volcano. Oh. It's the tallest volcano in the Cascades, in the state of Washington, actually. It's Washington State's highest peak. Right. And it's also the most dangerous. So, yeah. I mean, you just you get beautiful wilderness, so many cool things in this park, tons of glaciers. Lots of wildlife, and then a deadly volcano. Right. So that's best of everything. I know. I am so (laughs) glad it's a national park. I really am. I just, it's a spectacular place. Yeah. It's really interesting that Mount Rainier is number four because number five really surprised me. It's also in the Cascade Range, but, you know, Mount Rainier is. An active volcano. Yeah, and you can <laughs> and you can see it from the ocean. It's yeah. so far away. Like the, the naming story, you can see it from way out in the ocean because it literally just stands fourteen thousand feet up from sea level. It's so tall. But number five, it's a few years later, but it's the bottom of the Cascade Range. It's Crater Lake. That one blew me away too. I did not realize that Crater Lake was that early. Yeah. Because it's 1902. I know. May 22nd, 1902. And it's so interesting because in a lot of ways, this place got ignored by so many people. Crater Lake was an active volcano. And they actually know that Native people saw the volcano erupt its last time. In the ash, they found like remnants of sandals and things like that from a lot of the native people that were there at the time. But I mean, Crater Lake, Mount Mazama, was Uh the name of the volcano, is part of the Cascade Range. Right. It's the same volcanic range that goes all the way up to Mount Rainier and beyond. Oh, it's so crazy. So yeah, it's it's a really cool area. But it's definitely not as visible as like Mount Rainier. And so to me, in, in like in comparative fashion, there's no way that Crater Lake from afar even stands out. You can't even see it. No. Until you get, like, you're driving in the park and you're like, where is it? <laughs> you don't even see it till you get to the visitor center at the top or the lodge at the top. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, but there it is. Like, our experience with it now is almost the same experience that people had a long, long time ago because it had to be discovered and rediscovered multiple times. Yeah. Because nobody would go out there. There was you couldn't even see it from afar. Well, you'd and, have to have an airplane. Yeah. Really. To yeah. See, you know, I to know. like notice it. Oh my gosh. Especially compared to how many big, huge volcanoes are in that oh, mountain range. The Cascades have so many stand out mountains. Yeah. So it would be definitely very understated compared to the other mountains and areas that you're seeing around there. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. It was first discovered in like the 1850s by some prospectors, but then nobody ever went back. And then in 1862... They didn't even think to say anything about it. <laughs> this is the bluest lake I've ever yeah. seen. Well, that's what they called it. They just called it Deep Blue Lake. And then in 1862, another group of prospectors stumbled upon it, and they called it Blue Lake, and they did actually said something about it. And so that's the, we get our first published description from them, but then it wasn't until a few years later that it was officially discovered. In 1865, the army, once again, they had a fort pretty close 
And while they were building roads to the fort, some of the hunters stumbled upon what we now know as Crater Lake. And I so, like how they're like it. It was officially discovered, even though, again, native people had been in the area forever yeah. and knew about it. And other people had already found it. And then they're like, <laughs> the last people come in, they're like, I'm going to say something about this to somebody. So I discovered <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But what's interesting, I think part of the reason why it had to be rediscovered is because I don't know if we can trace this back to its last explosion, which was probably devastating. But a lot of the native peoples saw it as sacred so much so that they would never go there. And by the late 1860s is when there were finally a few published accounts in newspapers throughout the country of this really amazingly blue lake in Oregon. That's when in 1870, the story of turning this into a national park finally gets going, but even still super slow. A young man in Kansas named William Steele, he says that he remembers this was his first experience learning about Crater Lake. He was eating lunch and he unwrapped it from a newspaper and yeah. on the newspaper was a story about a deep blue lake in Oregon. Uh -huh. And at that moment, he vowed, one day I'm going to get there. Well, it took him another 15 years for his family to finally move from Kansas out to Portland, Oregon. And he became, as I recall, a mail carrier out there. But he was huge into mountain climbing. He loved mountain climbing. And he just thought that being outdoors was the best. He actually helped the U.S. Geological Survey map the bottom of Crater Lake. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. They used like some really crazy, it's not like we do today, but they had like a pipe and a piano wire. And so. <laughs> but they were super accurate. Yeah. I remember hearing the ranger talk about how they were not that far off from no. like our sophisticated equipment that we have now. Yeah. They used a piano wire and they pretty much yes. found how deep it was. They thought that it was 1,996 feet deep when it's actually 1,943 feet deep. So they were basically off by 53 feet, which is crazy. That's crazy. From that time forward, he had these early experiences. He is basically the father of Crater Lake becoming a national park. He was the catalyst for everything going forward. John Muir was a friend, but John Muir was busy other places. And so Steele, he took it upon himself. He lobbied journalists. He tried to get politicians to kind of take a look at this place and see how awesome it is. And I think a major part of what he did was he created a group called the Mazamas. And the Mazamas, it's kind of That's a funky cute. name. Pardon? What? That's cute. Yeah, it named it cute. after the volcano. Exactly. He created this group, but it's Mountain Climbing Association. Cool. And so the most effective thing that he ever did was in 1896 because he created this organization and he actually became one of the largest mountain climbing associations around. And so he created this organization, turned it into something cool. You actually, I think... If I remember right, you had to climb a glaciated peak in order to join the Mazamas. <laughs> and so it was a group of avid hikers who was who this was, but they were also, a lot of them, very influential people. Well, in 1896, he hosted the Mazamas at Crater Lake for three weeks. Mm. 
And so hundreds of people, including politicians, scientists, climbers, they spent those three weeks there. And at the end of this convention, they actually lit off a whole bunch of fireworks from Wizard Island. Oh, to really? kind of, yeah. Wizard Island is in the middle of Crater Lake. Right. And For those this, of you who haven't been there. <laughs> yes, it's this really cool, like little volcano but in the middle of Crater Lake. It's really cool. But they lit a bunch of fireworks off of there and they christened the mountain Mount Mazama called it. Oh, it wasn't already named that? Yeah, I don't think it was already named that. Oh. And so I, I think that they named that. And I think that as a result of all of those influential people finally getting to and being forced to come to Crater Lake and see everything, a few years later, in 1902, Teddy Roosevelt, on May 22nd, finally officially protected it as a national park. Nice. Which I think is so cool. So it wasn't, oh, the antiqui- the Antiquities wasn't a theme yet. The Antiquities Act right. in 1902. So it didn't start as a national monument. Because a lot of the parks, mm-hmm. when you'll see like date established and stuff, a lot of them started as national monuments under the Antiquities. Right. Exactly. But Crater Lake did not. The Antiquities Act was not a thing yet. So it was a full, straight-on national park that Teddy Roosevelt signed. Right, exactly. That's cool. It is really cool. That's really cool. I was just so shocked at these five being the first and how much I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope this has been fun. I will just want to mention, if you're interested, again, go look at that list. We'll link it into the show notes. But the next three, Wind Cave... Booyah. Like that's, (laughs) who would have thought? I know, right? The first national park to be created to protect a cave. Which is nuts. Was Wind Cave at number six. And not Mammoth Cave. No. Which is nuts. Wind Cave. Number six. And number seven, Mesa Verde. Wow. So that one was much earlier than I thought. And then number eight, most people's favorite, (laughs) Glacier. (laughs) Glacier National Park. Nice. So, yeah. There's some really interesting stories surrounding these parks. So for your task today, we want to know which national park surprises you the most according to when it was established. (laughs) So we're going to link the list of national parks by date established. And I want you to go look at that list. We'll link it in the show notes. And then head over to the Dirt in My Shoes Facebook or Instagram page. And there will be a post there where we're asking which one surprised you the most by like when it was established or just whatever sticks out to you. We are really curious because we definitely had some surprises as we were looking through the list. There's going to be so many surprises. I think you'll find multiple. But then after you do that, please then go and give our podcast a five-star review. We would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for exploring the national parks with us today. And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes.